listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belaboured episode 135. Today, we are going deep on healthcare and labor, on zombie Trump care that will not die, the Affordable Care Act, state single-payer bills, and the new Bernie Sanders single-payer bill and its co-sponsors. But first, this week's news. We've talked a bunch on this show about Trump's deportation plans and what labor can do in response. Well, here in New York, one union has decided to declare itself a sanctuary union in response to the deportation of one of its members. I spoke with George Miranda of Teamsters Joint Council 16. Let's start at the beginning. So one of your members was deported last week, right? Correct. Heber Garcia Vasquez uh, was deported. Um basically because of uh, his uh, asylum, as I understand it. Our application had been turned down back, I believe, in 2012. Yeah. But he's been a teamster since uh, for 26 years. Right. And has been working in this, you know, country and raising his family and uh, uh, on that. And, uh, and he's reporting in routinely as he was required to. Right. Uh, and he's had no uh, felony convictions and uh, no arrests, no nothing. Clean, 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 clean record. It just reports in once a year routinely. A few questions are asked, and yeah. they know exactly where he is. This time he went in, yeah. and uh, they kept him and yeah. uh, scheduled for the, the deportation. Yeah. Um, and left behind uh, his family. He got uh, three kids. He married an American citizen. And three kids are U.S. citizens. Was on his way to a green card about a year off, I guess. But he had an application for a green card. Is eligible for it, obviously. Yeah. Until this incident, now he's in Guatemala. That's the story. Yeah. And it's, uh, if it happens to him, it could happen to anybody. Clean, clean record. Absolutely nothing wrong. And so you guys had a, a big campaign trying to stop his deportation, right? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, we had a campaign, and we still have a campaign yeah. to have a deport, you know, to stop this deportation. Unfortunately, uh, you know, events and time overtook us, but uh, we had a lot of uh, organizations, uh, you know, come to our aid, and uh, you know, we had uh, protests and rally, and uh, we still have a uh, campaign, the uh, you know, the petition going around to stop the deportation. But unfortunately, you know, like I said, they, they he was on a fast track for some reason. Still don't know why. Yeah. Nobody's telling us why. And uh, from the time they picked him up to the time he's in Guatemala, it was 13 days. That was it. Yeah. And so after this, um, the union passed a resolution to become a sanctuary union. Um, tell us what that means and what that, you know, how that decision came to be. Well, it, it, it's a decision that, uh, you know, again, it's, it's immigrant rights and uh, labor rights are explicitly tied together. You can't have one without the other. And if you lose one, or lose that one issue, whether it's immigrants or the labor, you lose the other. And so it's obvious that, you know, we're tied together, and there's no way that we could just say that we're, you know, not a union of immigrants or whatever it is. And uh, it seems to us that we need to protect our members. We're all immigrants, so we need to protect our members more than ever now since this administration has taken the position that they've taken on immigrants. And so we've decided to be a sanctuary union, meaning that we would not, uh, you know, we protect our members. They're working, they're, they're earning their, their living, they're supporting their families, and they're not doing anything that's criminal or whatever it is. And we're not going to cooperate with the, uh, the immigration, uh, you know, uh, service 
whatsoever in going after our members. And we're going to uh, indoctrinate our members and help them with uh, attorneys and whatever expertise they need in order to, uh, you know, protect them and their families and and um, and hopefully get them out of the uh, the the, uh, the mess that they may find themselves in. And it mentioned that um, you will try to bargain for protections for undocumented workers in labor contracts as well. Yeah, we put language in there to try to protect them so that if they have to, uh, you know, go to court or whatever it may be, so that they don't end up losing their jobs or their rights on the job just because uh, ICE came up and, you know, just trying to uh, deport them. Yeah. Yeah. And so they maintain their rights and their benefits. Yeah. And so this is, um, you know, these days the labor movement is is pretty universally, you know, invested in the rights of immigrant workers, but this, you know, they're wasn't always so. And, you know, people like Trump still try to sort of play off immigrant workers against American born workers saying, you know, oh, they're coming for your jobs. So talk about why it's important for unions to fight on this front. Well, again, it's, it's we've, the labor movement was made up of immigrants coming back back in the early, early days of this country. And mm -hmm. you cannot separate us from the uh, the immigrant immigration situation in this country. They're explicitly tied together. These people are in a living. They 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 they're in building trades. They're in uh, uh, mechanics. Uh, they're in every walk of life. That we have and that we represent members on. So we we had they're they're part of the fiber of the labor movement, the yeah. immigrant movement. Yeah. So your union also has been involved in other protests and actions that have gone on um, about the Muslim ban, the border wall, things like that. Um, so talk about what that kind of organizing in the community looks like for your union. Well, it's it's it, it, they're starting to awake. They're awaking a, a, a giant right now. Little by little, people are seeing that we're all tied together. And uh, we all have the same issue as whether it's the wall or putting a wall up or whatever it may be. And, and all of it is designed to weaken unions and weaken the, the uh, you know, the immigrants and send them back. And so over time, people are now seeing that we are, we're more alike than we've ever been before. And we've got to start waking up and fighting back. And that's what this is all about. That was George Miranda of Teamsters Joint Council 16 in New York City. With all eyes on health care in Congress, you might have missed the introduction of a major new proposal on another kind of care, just as crucial. Not Medicare for all, but daycare for all. Everyone agrees that across income levels, the child care costs imposed on many working families today are ridiculously inflated, and existing public programs like Head Start are woefully underfunded and often inaccessible in many communities. The new Child Care for Working Families legislation put forward by Senator Patty Murray and Congressman Bobby Scott offers subsidies determined on a sliding scale scheme based on a state's cost of living. No family making up to 50% of the median income, about $100,000 for a household, would have to pay more than 7% of its household income for child care. The rest would be picked up by the government. For families earning up to 75% of the median income, childcare would be absolutely free. Even families left with a copay would gain a huge discount, since daycare center programs now in high-cost areas can be up to 40 to 80% of typical household income. It's often more expensive than public college, um, just as expensive as private tuition at a K-12 school. Funds could be used to expand existing statewide preschool programs on a state-by-state -state basis, or in the states that lack any central program at all, new child care programs for infants through pre-kindergarten could be launched. 
Basically, a working class family might see the cost of preschool drop from over half their paycheck to zero. The program is a major investment, of course, tens of billions of dollars over the next several years. In fact, it goes further than the Bernie Sanders health care bill and that actually bullets in costs um, to get a realistic perspective on what this would take, fiscally speaking. But it does provide a comprehensive standard program that will provide a truly nationwide universal pre-K system um, and improve overall outcomes for the rest of their lives. So a pretty worthy investment also those billions of dollars, much of it would go towards paying a standard $15 minimum hourly wage to childcare workers at certified programs. That would be a huge wage boost for workers who only earn about $10 an hour now, largely women of color, uh, largely people who can't afford childcare uh, for their own children, egregiously enough. Not many programs can essentially double a family's disposable income and help educate their kids in one fell swoop. But a plan like this, simple, elegant, expensive, yes, but worthy for sure, shows you just how important and how neglected the issue of childcare has been for decades. Remember that when working women were joining the wartime economy during the 1940s, the government was all too willing to provide universal childcare to every mom. Today, more women are working than ever before, but they are giving up more than ever before as they pay a massive personal penalty simply for wanting to stay in the workforce. As much as universal health care is a critical challenge for millions of families as a matter of human rights, universal child care is the only way we can achieve true economic justice for all parents in every community and to create a healthy future for all. The Spectrum cable workers in New York have been out on strike now for six months. Maybe some of our listeners know what that's like to be out of work on the picket line for month after month. This past Monday, the workers held a major rally and march across the Brooklyn Bridge with support from elected officials, including Governor Andrew Cuomo and Mayor Bill de Blasio, who are notably on two different sides of the bridge, AFL-CIO President Richard Trumka, community leaders, and other unionists. The more than 1,700 strikers are members of the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers Local 3. Charter Communications bought Time Warner Cable in 2016 and took over the contract, calling itself Spectrum, with its workers and has proposed, well, changes. This will all sound familiar to regular listeners of this podcast and labor movement observers. The company wants to move employees onto a 401k plan and a lesser health insurance plan away from their existing health and defined benefit pension plans. Complaints have been up since the strike began, as the company is relying on replacement workers. Mayor de Blasio's office has looked into the company's contract, and the governor, too, has criticized the company's adherence, or lack thereof, to its promises to the state, mentioning the $13 million that the state fined the company for failing to expand its broadband network as promised. The company, of course, is doing just fine. I know you're shocked to hear, though workers will point out that its stock prices spiked more than 30% in the past 12 months. And its CEO's pay package makes him the country's highest paid CEO, with a staggering $98.5 million in total compensation last year. So I did the math, and splitting that salary among these striking workers would mean nearly $58,000 per worker for the year. So the company's demands for givebacks, as so many companies are, are purely because they think they can get away with it. 
but the workers have been organizing in their communities and getting support from local organizations and socialist groups, as well as the rest of organized labor. While the strike has not notably gotten the attention that the Verizon strike did, that may be starting to change with Monday's massive rally. As you watch Gen X tech bros lord over the world of digital innovation, they seem to clone each other so their ranks populate every corner of the industry's boardrooms, labs, and cubicles. Don't forget the football table and the salad bar. You might get the feeling that Silicon Valley is a bit of a boys club? Well, it turns out that the tiny contingency of non-bros in the industry have also taken notice of this. And if you are frustrated enough slash outraged enough to take the top bros to court to call out the industry's massive but often hidden problem of gender discrimination. The lawsuit has been filed by three women who work as high-level professionals for Google, charging the company with systematic gender discrimination and coming on the heels of all sorts of sexism charges stemming from the top brass of the corporations. The plaintiffs say that women on staff are being paid less for essentially doing the same job as their male colleagues and getting no respect in terms of advancements. The women seek to recover damages for the discrimination they have suffered over the past four years, having lost out on job opportunities to more privileged male colleagues and been systematically excluded from the upper echelons of the workforce. They argue that all women should be able to recover unpaid wages from Google and simultaneously holds the corporation to account by pushing them to undertake internal reforms. Google actually acknowledges its gender gap. Being so data-driven and all, they've actually issued voluminous reports talking about all the statistical deficits they face when it comes to the other sex. About 70% of Google's workforce are men, according to the company. Men represent about 80% of staff in tech roles, 75% in leadership positions. With such an obvious disparity looming over Silicon Valley, the dominance of patriarchy, even in this supposedly progressive and forward-thinking corner of the capitalist world, shows you how far we have yet to go in combating subconscious bias and structural oppression. The high-profile cases of men actively degrading women, sexually harassing them, or failing to take their grievances seriously while they try to raise awareness of discrimination, all those do make headlines when it happens to someone with a big name and a big platform. But perhaps more outrageous is how much latent subconscious cultural bias these firms are able to get away with often sometimes even unbeknownst to their victims. One of the plaintiffs argued that she had been denied fair career opportunities throughout several years there. She felt excluded by the aggressively male, macho culture of the office and was hired at a lower-level position despite her years of prior experience as a software engineer. That set back her entire career trajectory, and yet it's very difficult to discern this simply by looking at paychecks alone. She left the company in response to what she saw was a misogynistic workplace culture. So the Justice Department may separately take Google to task, but whether or not there are real legal consequences here, it is extremely hard to separate a systemic bias from deliberate discrimination, and the legal nuances of this are still being worked out on the Supreme Court level, perhaps. But the legal effort is just one effort in a broader movement to challenge subconscious sexism endemic to Silicon Valley's neoliberal breakneck capitalism. If a bunch of dudes in hoodies can change the world with their apps, then a few outspoken women at Google headquarters should be able to change their industry from the inside.
Well, what a difference an election makes. What used to be unthinkable in the healthcare debate in Congress, fully universal free healthcare for all, used to be some radical idea cooked up by lurking Stalinists in the Democratic Party who wished to sabotage the party's liberal electoral prospects. But now that Trump Care is threatening to explode even the moderate reforms of the Affordable Care Act, single payer is now not only getting a second look, but looking pretty good to a lot of people, and also really possible and really rational, and maybe even the next rational step in healthcare reform. Bernie Sanders has introduced his long-awaited Senate single payer bill, a program known as Medicare for All, to cover everyone in the U.S. and eliminate private insurers, full stop. And why didn't anyone think of this before? Well, many were for many years, and now the right people are finally listening. We talked to Michael Lighty, Director of Public Policy for National Nurses United, one of the few labor groups who has been advocating for single-payer from the get-go. All right, so zombie Trump care rises again just as Bernie Sanders introduces his single-payer bill with a whole bunch of prominent co-sponsors. Um, so we're hoping you can talk a little bit about this particular moment in healthcare policy and why the status quo of the ACA, even if it survives yet another repeal attempt, is insufficient. Well, the dynamic is extraordinary and historic because we have uh, healthcare for all versus healthcare for none. And uh, as Senator Sanders says, and I think that's accurate because ultimately what the program of the Republicans is, is to dismantle the healthcare infrastructure that inadequate as it is, has provided some level of coverage and um, benefits to many, many Americans, and particularly those who didn't have it before 2010. So we are in that moment. But at the same time, we see that actually the emerging consensus is that we need to do and improve Medicare for all. You see 62% of Americans generally supporting national health insurance. That's extraordinary. So this moment is really, I think, uh, a pivoting point where we're either going to move toward guaranteed health care for all or we're going to be relegated to a state-based system that creates huge disparities and inequalities. And what, what got us to this point is the movement, the movement from the Senator Sanders presidential campaign, his focusing on the issue, and then the Bernie movement picking up Medicare for all as the rallying cry to really uh, mark this as here's our vision for an alternative society. You're not on your own. We can do this collectively and we can provide a real level of health security. At the same time, we can ultimately begin to address the yawning inequality gap and address the demands for justice across all issues. So we've, we really find that this Medicare for all, not only in its own sense, but opens the door for a lot of um, progressive alternatives. Okay. So just break it down for us. Um, the proposal before Congress, um, it shares some things with uh, the companion bill. Um, it also incorporates some of the things that Bernie's been talking about um, on the campaign trail. What exactly would it offer? And you know, what would Medicare for all mean for average Americans? And why is it important that your union be raising this? Well, nurses understand that the present system is simply inadequate. As, as you mentioned, the um, Affordable Care Act creates huge gaps because essentially it's tax-subsidized purchase of private insurance. And that's a failed business model, ultimately, that cannot provide guaranteed health care. So what S1804 does is replace those insurance company premiums, deductibles, and co-pays with a system of guaranteed health care, comprehensive benefits that covers everybody. 
And that difference provides a huge level of health security. I mean, literally no longer will people worry about whether they get the health care they need. And everything that Americans are concerned about when it comes to health care has to do with whether they will be able to get the health care they need, whether the financial barriers will prevent them from doing so. And that's what S1804 overcomes. It says, no, you're not going to get health care just based on your ability to pay for it. You're going to get the health care you need. And for nurses, that's a fundamental change because you, you go into any hospital or doctor's office and you essentially got an insurance company bureaucrat in the room with you. And they're going to tell you what prescription drugs you can get. They're going to tell you how long you can stay in the hospital. And they're going to tell you whether you can get an MRI. And for nurses, that's just unacceptable. So what we're essentially doing is we're removing the barriers to care and providing uh, clinicians, doctors, nurses with the ability to practice according to their own clinical judgment. And that's why this reform is so important to nurses. It seems almost commonsensical, and yet this was not the mainstream proposal in Washington for a long time, and the nurses' union has been at the forefront of actually like bringing this up. What is it about the nature of nursing that gives you kind of a more frontline perspective on why single-payer per se is needed? Well, nurses really embody um, the morality of caregiving, which is a practice and a value system that's really counterposed to the healthcare industry model of revenue and profit. And the New York Times or former New York Times healthcare writer Elizabeth Rosenthal has talked about that transformation from uh, a system of caregiving to an industry model. And nurses are really at the heart of that transformation in the sense that it's been so devastating to their own practice. And, and so nurses are always the ones who are closest to the patient. The reason you go into a hospital is to get nursing care ultimately because you need to be uh, monitored and cared for it on a 24-hour basis. And so they really are on the front line. So when the industry model starts trying to save money by short staffing or limiting length of stays or restricting treatments, denying care, nurses see it. Nurses see the impact on their patients directly. And that really animates their uh, revulsion at, at the industry model. It's, it, they are not compromised. They don't have equity interest in healthcare corporations. Um, they're not, uh, you know, themselves uh, independent uh, and entrepreneurs. So they really don't have a stake in that in that industry model. They are they are caregivers. They believe in uh, a single standard of safe therapeutic care for all, and they want that excellent standard universal for everyone. And the present system simply doesn't allow it. And they literally see that every day. This is not just a, a general principled issue, but it's also affecting their working conditions. And, uh, you know, we see the direct threat of Trump care coming down. How would Trump care directly affect uh, nurses' work in terms of the overall health care crisis as well as their working conditions? Well, Trump care would be devastating because, um, number one, it would take away the resources that have, to some extent, expanded um, coverage in uh, particularly in, in uh, through the Medicaid program, where states have expanded it, so essentially we know that if you don't have insurance, you're much more likely to delay care. You're actually much more likely to die as a result. And and nurses see that. Certainly, the the patients that are in most need are the ones who've never had insurance. We do. Um, uh, what we call, we have a program, the Registered Nurse Response Network. So we do disaster relief. And in many cases, we find that, of course, low-income neighborhoods are 
mo- um, disproportionately affected. And when nurses go in there and, and after a disaster, they find these people have never had access to adequate health care. And so that is so that is the, the reality of Trump care is that basically we're all thrown in on our own uh, without even the minimal access to uh, primary care or treatment of chronic conditions. If we if if you roll out these um, changes in Graham Cassidy, you're looking at at least 22 million people gone. You're looking at um, maybe 186 uh, billion dollars uh, out of uh, out of the Medicaid system that would have otherwise been there. Uh, perhaps more. It will directly affect seniors and disabled uh, folks. Uh, you're looking at um, a huge. Uh, rise in what we call the misery index, and that is directly related to both income and health status, which, of course, are, are linked. So we see this as a direct assault on not only the quality of life, but really the ability of, of low-income folks and workers in particular to have a minimal amount of, of health coverage. If Without, without that coverage, simply um, nurses um, will see folks uh, in the ER uh, in in really in conditions that may not be uh, treatable because they've gone so long without without care for their chronic conditions. Yeah, um, you mentioned the disaster relief, and of course, right now we're seeing this latest attack on healthcare in the midst of the wake of really massive hurricanes that have devastated Houston and bunches of Florida and now Puerto Rico. Um, so I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about what nurses in those places are seeing and what you know, what cutting health care at a time like this would do. I think it's, it's almost like um, you're, you're creating disaster conditions every day by adopting uh, Trump care because the same conditions that are revealed by disasters. I mean, literally you're seeing folks, we had a nurse who was down in, um, in uh, the Houston area after hurricane Harvey and, Literally, a guy comes into the shelter with a uh, who's diabetic with a blood sugar level of over 500. Normal blood sugar is between 90 and 120. So he's really at the risk of um, a diabetic stroke at that moment. He comes in. And this is across the board. Folks with untreated chronic conditions who have not had access to care, then exacerbated by my whatever treatment they were have, my prescription drugs and so forth, being flooded out. They're seeing conditions of extreme poverty. Those most in, uh, in need are the ones who are suffering the most under the hurricane. And you see a direct parallel between those same people not having access to health care. So if, if, we, if we add that up, we're literally talking about recreating that system. In Texas, for example, if, you, if you're a single mom, you will not get any help from Medicaid. You will not get any help from the ACA if you make more than $6,000 a year. So you can imagine what people in Houston are experiencing now that they've lost their home. And we also saw, of course, in um, in places like Florida where they lost power, that the uh, literally patients in nursing homes died literally um, without any kind of regulation of the nursing home industry. The, the fact that the Florida state government just turned a, turned a blind eye to those abuses, all of those um, long-standing patterns of the healthcare industry model are revealed by disaster. And literally, if we impose this new regime that Graham Cassidy and Trump uh, proposes, those disaster conditions will be the standard for uh, many, many states. That's the, and nurses see that um, when they go out in these disaster relief experiences. 
speaking to sort of the day-to-day hardships that people face on an everyday basis as well as in disaster zones, one of the things we've come across and we've interviewed nurses before in the show is how often it involves nurses and, and other healthcare workers and uh, clinicians actually themselves facing barriers to healthcare, seeing their benefits erode. So in terms of how we take care of the people who take care of us, uh, what would single payer offer? It would offer them the ability to practice as they were educated to do. It would enable them to exercise their clinical judgment. It would enable them to uh, not be pushed on uh, making changes in um, staffing, negative changes in staffing, reduced staffing loads that are essentially driven by the profit mandates of either the hospital or the insurance company. And, and those, are, those are major factors because what we've done under the Affordable Care Act is we've said, okay, we're not going to go to single-payer financing, which we know would save literally hundreds of billions of dollars nationally per year. We're not going to make those changes in how we finance healthcare. So guess what? We're going to have to make those changes in how we deliver healthcare. And so we're going to say that Americans use too much healthcare. Well, <laughs> folks in this country don't exactly agree with that. I mean, the Japanese go to the doctor four times as much as Americans. They ha- we have a length of stay in hospitals that's way below the um, average for highly industrialized countries. So that that's really what's going on is that nurses um, – would be able to actually deliver the care that that they were educated to do and that is consistent with their values because they wouldn't be having to save money on a budget-driven system because the insurers are still taking their profits and pharma is still ripping us off. And in fact, frankly, hospitals are still charging too much. So if we're able to reform financing through a Medicare for All system, we can then improve quality on the delivery side. So labor, of course, has not always unified behind single-payer proposals, or perhaps we should say candidates who propose single-payer. But I would love for you to talk about a little bit of the history and the the tensions within the labor movement on this issue of whether sort of labor has backed its ability to bargain for health care in a way that, you know, we're now seeing was a problem. Yeah, it's a a good question, Sarah, because there is a lot of um, kind of historic... um, uh, debate within within the labor movement as to whether we really should stick with the employer-sponsored insurance system because it provides a, a way for unions to really deliver you know benefits to their members um, and also encourage organizing and and so and then of course many of the unions are invested in trust funds um, which provide uh, organizational support to their to their operations. So it is it is complicated in that sense. However, if you talk to most of these trust fund administrators for those union plans, they'll tell you that this model may not be viable in five or ten years. And we've gotten a lot of support, for example, in California from the building trades, that they really are, are fed up with being in the healthcare business, and particularly after the Affordable Care Act, which frankly disadvantaged many unions. The the Cadillac tax would hit unions. The um, benefit to, to um, non-union employers were quite high. And, and in fact, some of the trust funds took a hit by being taxed under the Affordable Care Act. So there's actually a mixed uh, view of the Affordable Care Act within the labor movement. So those, I think, barriers that have historically been there are coming down. What you hear from unions uh, who are still skeptical um, 
is that, well, we still need the advantage in organizing to provide these benefits. But the truth is, there's a role for supplemental coverage under uh, a Medicare for All type plan like Senator Sanders. Uh, and, and we should shift those resources from healthcare to, to pensions and wages. If you look at charts, essentially wages since uh, 1970 are flat on an average hourly basis. But if you look at compensation, it's up over 160%. Well, where's all that money gone? It's gone to the health insurance companies, the pharma companies, and, and hospitals. What we're engaged in in the labor movement is a, is a massive transfer of wealth from one set of corporations, our employers, to another, which is the healthcare industry. And increasingly, people are fed up with that. And the notion that workers like their health plan is also, I think, uh, uh, misleading. The large employer plans, which are the best, have average deductibles and out-of-pocket costs uh, totaling $4,400 a year. Now, that's not something necessarily that people want to <laughs> keep because they're concerned precisely because that's too much money to spend and, and, and there are real barriers to getting the care they need. So I think all that's eroding. I think the um, general understanding that we're coming to is <clears throat> we cannot keep what we have unless everybody has it. And that's the new reality for the labor movement with these good plans. Our plans, as you see under Trump care, are just going to be attacked and attacked and attacked. And everything they're doing to Medicaid and the individual market is going to come back to employers. In fact, under Graham Cassidy, you're looking at the reestablishment of lifetime caps uh, under employer plans. You're looking at <clears throat> being able to deny people uh, coverage for pre-existing conditions under employer plans. So the notion that we're insulated is false. The notion that we can keep what we have and others suffer is false. Really, literally, we're at the point of we have to guarantee it for everybody just to keep the good union plans we have. Um, you talked about that as a, as a sort of emerging consensus. Is it the crisis over Trump care unfolding in Washington right now that's pushing people to this point where they're starting to embrace um, something that was once seen not too long ago as, as a pretty radical change? Or is it something in the way that the messaging is done now or just sort of longstanding organizing efforts finally bearing fruit? I think it's I think it's longstanding organizing efforts. I mean, we had a labor caucus for single payer in the 2009-2010 reform period. We really moved the AFL-CIO back to a position of supporting explicitly Medicare for all, which they hadn't done really since 1993. So the, that was real change. However, it pales in comparison to the change that has been wrought since Senator Sanders ran for president and he and the Bernie movement and really and with nurses in the forefront who have made this issue so prominent since then. But ultimately, the reality is that people are just having such a negative experience now with these insurers. The out-of-pocket costs are so high. All the, all the costs that employers have experienced have been shifted to workers. All the costs have been shifted to workers. Um, so all of that has added up to a, 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 just a, a sea change, really, among union members saying, we're OK, we're fed up. Our employer plans, yeah, that's fine. We're, we're really grateful to have them, but it's simply not giving us the security we need. So I think that's really what's been the change is just these high out-of-pocket costs have gotten so bad. One of the things is, that I wanted to ask and follow up to that is that a lot of people sort of voted for Trump under the impression that he was going to make their health care better. And right now, of course, the Republicans are selling their plan by baldly lying and saying that more people will have coverage. Um, but I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit, because it's interesting, right, that like people's frustrations, even with the reformed system under the ACA, 
when we can talk about the Medicaid expansion and where it happened and didn't happen in, in a lot of detail, I suppose. But like the the reaction, you know, the difference between sort of what Trump sounded like he was telling people on the campaign trail and the realities right now of what they're putting forward. It's pretty interesting. I totally agree, Sarah. I mean, look at the the disconnect between elite opinion and popular experience. Uh, real people's experience on this issue is like the Grand Canyon. I mean, the gap is huge. The pandocracy in Washington, uh, and that includes, you know, liberal pundits as well as conservative pundits, literally do not know what workers are going through with health care. And they also don't seem to really understand how in other countries that have established um, universal health care systems where that is just a non-issue. That level of security, insecurity is simply a non-issue. People in other countries don't worry about it. And I think that gap between people's real experience and opinion uh, is part of, of why voters would be attracted to Trump's message, because ultimately he ran against these politicians who just don't do anything and lie to you. And I'm going to I know how to do it better. And that's very appealing because the system has failed uh, workers so profoundly. And I, I think that that's also the appeal of um of Senator Sanders, because he he's his authenticity, his commitment to the issue. People just get it. They understand that he is someone who understands them. And that goes a long way. And I don't think this debate's going to play out the way the pundits and the Beltway <clears throat> opinion leaders think, because this is a prairie fire out there. And the fact that, that um, President Trump could uh, win on that message tells you that people are truly fed up and desperate. And that's really what we have to understand. There is a level of desperation. We're doing town halls, ultimately, in every assembly district in California. Uh, we've done over a dozen so far. And the level of desperation out there is profound and completely under the radar, I think, for, for pundits. But ironically, um, Donald Trump is someone who's been able to tap into it. Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting because he's actually at various points uh, sounded uh, in framing his proposals like he's actually been for single payer in a sense. So, you know, oh, no, he's written about it. He's in his book, in his book, he's explicitly said single payer is better. <laughs> so he was for it before he was against it. Wow. Yeah. Trump well, contradicting himself. That is like so shocking. I'm shocked. I'm shocked. Um, so this is a good place because you mentioned the town halls you've been doing in California to, to segue to talking about some of these state bills. Um, I know you've been very involved in the California bill. So let's start off there and talk about um, where that is. Well, SB 562 is um, passed the state Senate and installed in the assembly. We have a two-year session here, so that means that it can be taken up again in January. But if it's going to if it's going to move to the governor's desk in 2018, it will need to, to get out of the um, uh, start moving in the assembly in the spring. So that's why we're engaged in this process. I mean, it's been it's it's a great um, kind of talk about litmus tests. It's a great litmus test to say, okay, here's a proposal in a state two-thirds controlled by the Democrats in the legislature with a Democratic governor. So here's a party where 70, 80% of its uh, base supports this reform. you got 58% of Californians support it. And so you'd think, well, hey, they can do it in California. And it's true, they could. But those politicians who don't support that bill, but say sign on to Senator Sanders' bill, are really uh, engaged in symbolic politics. Because here the proposal is real. Here the proposal is the Democrats could do it if they had the political will. And what we found instead was that uh, the Speaker of the Assembly, who 
gets a lot of money, uh, yes, from unions, but also from the insurance industry and pharma and other healthcare corporations wanting to protect his so-called moderate members from a vote that would, you know, uh, obviously conflict with the donors and provide healthcare to the people. And that's a situation the Democratic speaker didn't want. So that's why we're having to go uh, into their districts. We're knocking on every door uh, in assembly districts, in a canvas. We're going and then organizing these town halls. What we found in, in Speaker Rendon's district, who was the one who stalled the bill, 41% of his constituents said that they'd be less likely to vote for him, knowing that. Uh, so it is, it's a political um, issue uh, that ultimately will have to be resolved, I think, um, through through grassroots organ policy um, in SB 562, our California bill is really very similar to Senator Sanders 1804, and we believe that just like um, Romney Care in Massachusetts set us up for the Affordable Care Act, and <laughs> in some unfortunate ways, yeah. we believe that California can win single payer and set us up for national improved Medicare for all. Yeah, I, it's interesting because, of course, Vermont was the first state to pass a single payer bill, but because in part because it's a small state that doesn't sort of have the weight to throw around the way that a California or New York does, it ended up being sort of backburnered by the legislature. Um, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit both about the Vermont experience and also um, some other state-based bills. We, of course, in New York have one as well that's been being introduced every session since, I think, 1993. That's right. That's right. Um, the... Um in fact, SB 562 was really modeled on the New York Health Plan because mm -hmm. that bill was written after the Affordable Care Act. So we found that a very useful um, model. The um, I think the Vermont experience is different from how uh, Governor Shumlin characterized it in the last week. He characterized mm -hmm. it as a, a financing problem. It's really more of a political problem and a, mm -hmm. and a timing problem, I think, because they... Um, they had the political momentum. They had a financing proposal. They had a very sound analysis that we're actually using in California by Harvard professor William Shaw, and they just didn't implement it in time. By the time they did get around to it, he had lost his legislative majority. There is There are difficulties with a small state. We believe that a state like California or New York uh, is a much better place to do it. We have more control over um, how to integrate um, Medicare or how to work with a system at a state level that, that is compatible with Medicare, which you can't really do in a small state because those are usually grouped with other small states under Medicare. You also have the resources of a nation in the case of California uh, because you have, um, we're taking on climate change so we could take on guaranteed health care. The truth is, though, is that in California, 70% of health care expenses are paid for by taxpayers. So we essentially have a publicly funded system. We're just not getting our money's worth. And and the advantage of a state is that um, this controlled by the Democrats like, um, like California, or if we can flip the Senate to a true Democratic control in, in New York, and now with Governor Cuomo, maybe uh, could be pressured to, to to sign it, then you have a different dynamic that's much more accessible to reform. Mm -hmm. uh, and that overcomes some of the problems, of course, you do have with, with needing federal waivers and so forth. But we believe that, that, that both the proximity of power and the um, democratic control enables us to, to win it in a state. There's an active movement in Minnesota, for example. There are efforts in Washington state and Oregon to put it on the ballot. Uh, mm -hmm. So this is a groundswell at the state level as well. And of course, the Republicans see that coming, and so are writing into this 
current edition of Trump Care a ban on such things? Well, it, you know, it's funny because because um, Senator Graham came out yesterday and says, hey, look, you can't have federalism on your terms. If, <laughs> you know, if those fools in California want to do it, well, can't we can't really stop them. So I'm not sure uh, that uh, ironically, Senator Kennedy from Louisiana is going to get that get that amendment in. But clearly, you know, you saw Mitch McConnell basically saying that we're going to, you know, transform the federal health care infrastructure and move it all to the states so that you can't ever do national health care. And it was like, this is hell for Bernie care. That was, you know, uh, or was that Lindsey Graham or Mitch McConnell? I can't remember which one that which, was. What, socialism but... or federalism? <laughs> yeah, socialism or federalism. That was it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah it's oh, funny man. how how selective they seem to be about states' rights. You know, it seems like when when there's a local initiative to be more progressive than they are, they're all of a sudden all about uh, federal power. So uh, personally, I like the implicit analogy of federalism to barbarism. In that, yeah, there you go. That use there. <laughs> <laughs> And ultimately, I mean, you just to keep our eyes on the prize here, I mean, the reason Bernie Care is being introduced at the national level is essentially that doing it state by state is one thing, but ultimately you want to move to a point where everyone under in the entire country is covered under the same plan. Exactly. And we're not, and right, we're not like, I mean, look at Senator Sanders had an earlier version of his bill that was state-based administration. Um, but it just in the present climate and after the, the Roberts decision on, on the Medicaid expansion, uh, in, uh, it, it, that approach looks, you know, a lot less viable. And so, and really what Graham Cassidy does is shift monies. Uh, that's that $186 billion number. That number is the, uh, amount of money taken from states that expanded Medicaid and given to states that didn't. So it's just a transfer um, uh, of, of a chunk of money, but with the overall impact of fewer people covered. So it is it's it is uh, barbarism, I think, uh, in the in 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 the true sense. Uh, it's a barbaric approach to healthcare, and it's immoral, and it directly conflicts with. Um, not only the values of nurses, but obviously the interest of workers. So I, I think that that um, I actually think that what we're really looking at is a political dynamic where state work on single payer can be reinforcing of the demand for national Medicare for all. And we're seeing that in California. We saw an uptick in our activity at the doors and in the town halls once Senator Sanders introduced his Medicare for all bill. And just like SB 562 helped be a key part of the momentum pushing uh, senators to get on the bill, pushing, uh, you know, the, the national debate on single payer. We're now seeing a really positive feedback loop uh, from that bill helping us in California. And Senator Sanders is going to be here in San Francisco on Friday. And we'll be talking about that. And that will really, I think, crystallize how we can work on these uh, both state and national reforms at the same time. Yeah. And, you know, just to be real, we all know that the ultimate battle for single payer is going to be um, it's going to take more than one session of Congress, let's just say. So um, yes. we can end on just uh, explain a little bit about the Sanders Institute and how you are hoping to maybe bring some of the lessons you've learned with um, labor organizing to some of the broader strategic concepts that that institute is working with. In many respects, the Sanders Institute reflects the new moment that we're in, where there is a real attention to policy and organizing and integrating those through, as, as you say, a coordinated strategy that can help build the progressive movements based upon a set of popular ideas that are well analyzed and understood. 
And what we find is that there is a real gap, an education gap um, within activists and within the general public. We know we want Medicare for all, but let's understand you know, exactly how it works and how we could do it. And so that, in many respects, the Sanders Institute confronts that knowledge gap, and that's really vital because you look at, you know, you hear folks, and we heard this during the ACA debate, keep your government hands off my Medicare. Um, <clears throat> gee, if we just do the free market or the private sector uh, can solve our problem. We just have too much government. And so ultimately, those ideas are not well-grounded. They simply uh, reflect a lack of education on what's actually going on in healthcare. And so we, what the Sanders Institute can do is connect people's experience because they know, for example, in healthcare, the system's not working with a set of policy ideas made accessible that directly impact, um, impact them positively and then help motivate them to engage in social change. So if we can, if we can end that, that knowledge gap and then motivate people to activism through better understanding how their own experiences relate to the policy demands, then we're going to help build this broad movement. So I think that's really um, ultimately going to be the value of this institute, is being able to engage in popular education that motivates activism. That was Michael Lighty of National Nurses United and the Sanders Institute. You can find out more information on everything we've discussed here at the Descent website, descentmagazine.org. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it is everyone's favorite time, time for ARG. I wish I'd written that. We talk a lot about charter schools on this show as they are one of neoliberalism's favorite end runs around teachers unions as well as a way for philanthropers, or as Joanne Barkin would say, philanthrocapitalists, to funnel money into private pockets while pretending to care about public schools. This new report from Annie Waldman at ProPublica, titled Failing Charter Schools Have a Reincarnation Plan, is looking at yet another way that charter schools are ripping people off. Specifically, as it says in the deck, converting into private schools and using voucher programs to thrive on the public dime. The story begins in Florida, where the Orange Park Performing Arts Academy, a K-5 charter school, was shut down after receiving a failing grade two years in a row. Remember all that accountability? But the school didn't close. Instead, it reopened as a private school that costs $5,000 a year, which is just under the maximum provided by a state school voucher program that allows students to pay for private school with public money. In other words, the charter school, which already paid private companies on the public dime, is now a fully private school, but still, Waldman writes, quote, academy officials expect all of its students to pay tuition with the publicly backed coupons. She continues, while it's widely known that private schools convert to charter status to take advantage of public dollars, more schools are now heading in the opposite direction. Her review found 16 struggling or failing charters that have gone private to take advantage of voucher programs, 13 of them just since 2010. She writes, Quote, two key factors underlie these conversions. The number of voucher and voucher-like programs across the country has more than tripled over the past decade, from 16 to 53. And charter schools, which became popular as a way to spur educational innovation with reduced regulation, have increasingly faced more stringent oversight. 
Jean Allen, founder and CEO of the Center for Education Reform and a longtime supporter of charter schools, lamented in a recent op-ed that increased government regulation is turning them into bureaucratic, risk-averse organizations fixated on process over experimentation. You know, the process of educating students. Why not just be a private school if the kids qualify for the scholarship, said Christopher Norwood, a consultant for the Orange Park School, in an interview. With 90% fewer regulations, schools can be independent and free and just deal with the students. Apparently not very well. This all means that the schools are even less accountable than they were as charters. Only about half the voucher programs require any kind of academic assessments, and few states that do require them publish the data. And perhaps most importantly, Waldman writes, quote, while most states have provisions for closing low-quality charter schools, few, if any, have the power to shut down low-performing voucher schools. Other schools that she note that she covers in the article are in Indiana, where some schools can actually lose access to the voucher program, but that still isn't stopping failing charters from converting to fully private voucher schools. Unsurprisingly, Trump's education secretary, Betsy DeVos, she who squeaked through confirmation on Mike Pence's tie-breaking vote, loves this idea and wants to take it nationwide. Florida's voucher program in particular, which Waldman writes, pursues a different strategy from most voucher programs. Its tax credit scholarships are backed by donations from corporations. They contribute to nonprofit organizations, which in turn distribute the money to private schools. In exchange, the donors receive generous dollar-for-dollar -dollar tax credits from the state. This subsidy indirectly shifts hundreds of millions of dollars annually from the state's coffers to private schools. More than 100,000 students whose families meet the income eligibility requirements have received the tax credit coupons this year. So we've got just another way to let rich people sap the state's coffers while siphoning funds to their friends' pockets. My pick comes from Thomas Frank. It's called, Are Elite Universities Safe Spaces? Not if you're starting a union, it appears in The Guardian. It seems from all the critical hand-wringing and tisk-tisking in the media from leading intellectuals that campuses are cesspools of intolerant, petulant brats, humorless liberal snowflakes who need trigger warnings and pillowed safety rooms to coddle their easily bruised, bleeding liberal hearts. But for all the anxieties over campus culture as the death of free speech from the left, people seem to overlook how another aspect of the Bill of Rights is getting crushed even harder on the college campus, and it's a different kind of oppression at work. The hostility towards organized labor among students shows that it's not wars of words that students are worried about necessarily, but serious class warfare, what they endure from the very same liberal elites who poo-poo are young for being precious navel-gazers. Frank dismisses the hype about the so-called snowflake generation. He writes, quote, Let us look instead into the actual conditions under which the work of higher education is done. Let us talk labor. He notes the 2016 National Labor Relations Board decision that graduate students at private institutions are eligible to form unions for their instructional duties and to bargain collectively with their employers, that is, the university. This has spurred a flurry of unionization activity at many private campuses, which we've reported on here at Belabored, and that could be a breakthrough for organized labor in the coming months. But Frank reports, quote, here's the catch. Thanks to the election of Donald Trump last November, the NLRB will soon be under the sway of his extremely anti-union Republican Party. And what are all the liberal elites at our liberal art colleges doing? They're waiting at the clock. 
and doing all they can to bust the union in the meantime. The real culprit here are the campus administrators who are all too happy to condemn Trump's mean words, but quietly welcome his anti-labor oppression below the surface. Frank writes, quote, a radicalized university that lives to coddle young people would sit down immediately at the bargaining table and give those graduate students what they want. A corporation that is determined to keep its employers from organizing, on the other hand, would stall and delay and refuse to recognize the union until Trump's new right-wing NLRB can saddle up and ride to the rescue. And guess what? That is exactly what these universities are doing, unquote. What is so bad about making our young scholars a little more resilient? to get them to pay their dues before they ascend to their predestined prestigious careers in the ivory tower. Aren't they satisfied given their supposed privilege? Turns out that many of their concerns as teachers are everyday problems that all workers face today. Missing paychecks, lack of an effective grievance procedure, total lack of job security, a lack of say in their workplaces. And it's also about the principle of labor in higher education. Frank notes that universities ripped up the old academic social contract to shreds some years ago. The trade-off used to be that after many years of hard and poorly compensated labor teaching college kids, graduate students would collect their PhDs, headed into the world to become professors, an honored and well-compensated occupation. But perches in the professoriate have become rare, mainly because universities have figured out that the more hardworking graduate students they could bring in to teach classes, the fewer full professors they needed. And so it goes with the de-skilling, eroding job security, and ruthless exploitation that guides the rest of the neoliberal economy. The workforce in the professions is in theory more prestigious, perhaps, but all that prestige surrounding the professoriate amounts to little in a world of the precariat, where increasingly titles alone are what separates one class of richer working stiffs from another, and we're all suffering for it. Now we're seeing how rapidly the prestige can fade when you start betraying the ruling class, when you start biting the hand that feeds you, especially as a young rabble-rouser. Labor organizing on campus has been helping to rekindle solidarity between student workers and all other workers, from the cafeteria staff to the kids working in the library. And it's that budding unity across the precariat that frightens the dickens out of the corporates that guard the gates to the Ivy League endowments. And oh, the irony. Frank notes that while grad students teeter on the brink of burnout and financial collapse at Columbia, Columbia President Lee Bollinger is busy touting himself as a leading scholar on First Amendment rights. Yet at the same time, he's suppressing the budding union of graduate students who have been organizing on his own campus for years to advocate for a bare minimum of economic democracy. Frank does note, however, that the campus as a workplace is a particularly pertinent analogy for our times. This is more than a tale of hypocrisy, he writes, in the groves of academe. This is a story about modern liberalism and what's wrong with it, and about the long-term migration of liberalism's concerns away from matters of economics and class. So what's happening right now on the campus of Columbia of the Grad Workers Union, and on the campus of Yale, and on the campus of Cornell, and all across the country, is a real teach-in of sorts, a class formation on multiple levels that should teach the administrators a lesson or two about what justice really means. It's not spoiled millennials against everyone else, you see. It's a growing, angry set of youth who are becoming bolder and holding the supposed grown-ups in the room to account for their own irresponsible actions as the adults squander a generation's promise of a bright future on real estate speculation, on fancy sports teams, and on the commercialization of what used to be a public trust, higher education.
When we stand up for organized labor on campus, we're not protecting anyone's safe space except for democracies. And isn't that all of our duty? And that's all for this episode of Belabored. Remember, if you've got an idea for how to change unions on campus, for revolutionizing our healthcare system, or for changing Google from the inside, find us on Twitter at hashtag belabored or email belabored at descentmagazine.org. Keep it real. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.